Welcome to the latest Ethical Marketing Podcast. Today, we're going to do a few things. We're going to have a bit of a chat with Andrew and Shan about what Andrew does. And we're going to have the second part of the interview with Dr. Rebecca Swift from Getty, which is absolutely fascinating. Andrew's background in crisis PR, which is part of the reason that Shan and I have a chat to him every week just about stories that have interested us. We thought it'd be really interesting to see why we think it's important that people consider that as a part of their marketing strategy. So, Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about what your role is at the moment? I'm one of the managing partners at 181st Street. My role specifically is Director of Crisis Communications, Investor Relations, and all-round spin just about anything. So what that really consists of is a combination of leading crisis responses for those companies that we have on retainer, and also working with companies to frame their messaging, prepare their messaging for crises, and also prepare them for investment as well, because those two processes really aren't actually that different. And that's all about audience segmentation, working out who you're talking to, how you're talking to them, and where you're talking to them, which is basically the same, whether it's investor relations, whether it's branding, whether it's advertising, because that's the other thing that I do. I do all of the socio-demographic and psychographic research and behavioral modeling around our audience profiling, which is then used for micro-targeting. And I have a degree in socio-political economics, a master's degree in socio-political economics and rhetoric, and then a doctorate, well, actually a, a DSOC Sci, doctorate of social sciences in socio-political economics and rhetoric. The modelling there and both my theses and a number of theses from the LSE, from Cambridge, from Oxford and from St Andrews became the bases of our audience profiling methodologies. We're an audience first agency, so whether it's crisis, whether it's micro-targeting, whether it's branding, we always start with the same thing. Whether it's internal comms for that matter, work out who you're talking to, work out what they want to hear and work out where they are. Now that may sound really straightforward and everybody's probably doing that with their Facebook ads, but very few people are doing it with their actual messaging, even in their Facebook ads. I think people might wonder why, as an ethical marketing podcast, we do speak to you about these things. And I know it's because we believe that this kind of crises that happen to these big companies can happen to any company at any time. And for us, it's about showcasing what to do and what not to do in these situations. I think there's a perception with regards to a lot of what you do with regards to dealing with crises and things like that, that people think that it doesn't affect ethical companies or that it's not ethical to try and spin things or that it's not the right thing to do, that the right thing to do is just admit your mistake and try and move on. And I'd be interested to know your thoughts on that. The thing there is that ethical companies can actually experience these things and especially crises and communications issues to a much greater extent than standard corporates because they've already placed themselves on the pedestal. They have attracted their audience by being fundamentally good. But at the moment you get on that pedestal, there is going to be somebody who believes you have let them down if you grow, if you recruit new staff, if you recruit new supporters, if you go more mainstream over time, which is the only way to make money. Let's be honest, we've talked about Spotify, we've talked about Oakley. They all have something in common, which is they've got to grow. 
from an audience first perspective, and it's exactly what we discussed with Oatly, your kind of low hanging fruit, if you like, of an audience are the really activist driven audiences that will support you because of your values, especially when you're small and you're a challenger brand. Those audiences typically don't see themselves represented in the mainstream. They don't necessarily want to fit in the mainstream. They like the ethos behind challenger brands, but they then do tend to have very emotional reactions and almost feel betrayed when challenger brands go from that journey from challenger to corporate. And that's exactly what we saw happen with Oatly that we discussed in the last episode. And I think that's where you have to be really, really aware of this stuff as a brand going in, because if you are going to make that your core supporter audience from the beginning, you have to consider how you're going to take them on your growth curve with you and what you're going to do to weather the inevitable storms that are going to come from that. I think that's a very fair point. A lot of what we do when we deal with crises is not really about changing the company. It's often about ensuring they stick to their values, but do it in a corporately responsible way. When it comes to crises and becoming a crisis PR, minimum standard for anybody who says they are a crisis PR, and I know I've said this before, is five. You have to have done five large crises. I'm somewhere in my hundreds at this point. And the whole reason you get good at it is because you do it over and over and over and over again. And that's so important because when you're inside a company, especially an ethical company, you believe in what the company sells. You believe in their messaging. And more often than not, you can't believe that somebody's upset with you. Certainly if they're doing their internal comms, especially as marketeers, you are bought into that vision mission values stuff to the nth degree. So you can't really even understand why somebody is attacking you. And then you want to get defensive, which leads to not necessarily talking in the voice that you have well established. It means being too willing to admit fault where fault is not necessarily yours. It means that you forget to frame and be a communications person because you're too busy trying to represent the values of your company. Whereas actually, as a person, the first thing you should do is stop. And I've said this before, crisis comes in, immediately stop, take half an hour, nothing is that desperate. Literally nothing in my career, apart from maybe two. But throughout my career, very few are ever that desperate. And most of the ethical brands at this point are not large enough that they would ever experience something that required an instant response. And the only reason you ever instant response is if you think you can turn the entire argument on its head and actually turn it into a positive. And to do that, you have to be 50, 100 crises in to even be capable of doing that. Not because it's a skill, but because you have to have seen the opportunity and failed to take it 50, 60 times to be able to learn how to do it. Because crisis is a taught skill. And the only way to learn it is apprenticeship. It's why most crisis PRs, government, big industry, basically. Because if they happen regularly, you get to a point where you know this stuff. Ethical companies dealing with a crisis, their first issue is that their entire comms team, if they've got one, is completely bought in. They want to react because they feel like they're being attacked. Crisis PR is all about doing 
the opposite of your natural reaction. It's about the weight. It's about the calm. It's about the, actually, let's see how this plays out. You have to be strategic at every step and you have to understand who is attacking you. Even if they have grounds to attack you, understanding their motivation helps you understand your response. And again, the more times you do it, the easier that becomes. There's an interesting point there. I think what you say is right. Those of us who work within an ethical sphere are very passionate about the ethics side of it as well as the marketing side of it. For example, us ethical marketers, we love marketing. We're there to try and sell you something. We just kind of feel we have to believe in what we're trying to sell you. and We have to try and believe that we're doing it for the right reasons. And I suppose it's very easy then to become emotionally attached to something and then to not the facts in the way that the outside world will see something. I think what I would point to there is that charities experience the same issue with communications people, that they buy into the, the dream. However, charities are, well, the dream, the ambition, the mission, the vision, mission values. But the difference with charities is they are controlled by the Charities Commission. They are effectively a regulated entity. But what that means in turn is they have a chairman, they have a non-exec board and an exec board. That means they have the corporate oversight. So often you will find charities bring in crisis PRs. But with charities, because they're in a position where they have the corporate infrastructure you would find at a FTSE 100 company and a regulator on top of that, they are often very willing to bring in crisis PRs because it's taken out of the hands of the communications team. Even the comms director or the exec director ends up with that out of their hands and onto the board. One of the things I said in the Spotify podcast is if you are the most senior comms person at your organization, the best way to avoid crises is not to be a yes person. You have to say no. You have to say this is bad for our brand. If you are the brand guardian, you better be saying no. Otherwise, they need to replace you because that is literally your job. And I'm sorry, but whether or not you appoint somebody to be your brand guardian or not, if you are the most senior comms person in an organization, you are the brand guard. Full stop, end of story. And I don't care what rank you are. I said in that podcast about the fact if you are a junior, don't talk up to directors and think you've got the ability to do that. But when it comes to brand guardianship, if you are all they have, be sensible about it. You only have to raise it once. Personally, I'd raise it a couple of times and because I find irritation is an effective way to get people to change their minds. But that would just be me. You have to push back on dangerous things. I know I say this every podcast, 90% of crisis management is avoiding the crisis. Actually, the other 10% is why you hire us, because we can do that. You don't want to do that in-house. It's a terrible idea. And if you do do it in-house, please hire psychotherapists for afterwards, because the staff that repeatedly have to deal with crises get depression. It's a fact. It's nearly 100%. It's obscene. If you're not built for it, designed for it, and trained for it, this stuff gets to you, which is why you bring in people like us. It's also why you bring us in early to avoid it. But also, if you do deal with it in-house, do provide support. And also, if you have social media managers, get them support regardless. I know it was Mental Health Week, what, week before last. It's really worth mentioning that because the burnout rate of social media managers and staff turnover after a crisis is just ridiculous. So, Shan, from a marketing perspective, how much do you think our role as marketers is to do that kind of brand guardianship? Do you think that's inbuilt into our role? I think it should be. I don't 
see that happening in a lot of organizations and I don't actually see that a lot of organizations know how to do that and worth saying for full disclosure I know we've said it on the podcast before but I am the other managing partner at 181st Street so I work very closely with Andrew on this stuff but I cover the brand marketing communication strategy side of it and actually what we're seeing a lot especially in the ethical and sustainable sector is that because the sector itself is relatively young, there's obviously this growth curve that's now happening of brands that have had big investment and brands that are starting to scale and brands that are going on that growth curve, but that are still in the mentality of they are founder-led, the founder is still very much the CEO. And because they have started based on founder vision, founder values, and the problem that that founder or founding team set out to solve, They do, like Andrew said, they come in and they just say, well, we're going to lead from our values and we're going to handle this ourselves and everyone will buy in because everyone has always bought in. And I think part of the problem they find is that probably that founder has run social media for a significant amount of time before they've taken on staff to do it. And it's probably still a very small team that are then running predominantly the digital comms where you get that instant feedback. But those activist audiences and those low hanging fruit audiences are very, very supportive and highly engaged on social media. So very small brands in the sustainable sector find that they don't make sales because they focus too much on talking to those people that are really supportive of them, but actually aren't buying anything because they're so far along their sustainability journey. The brands that do break out of that echo chamber and still lead with their social justice or their environmental justice still find that they get so much support and positive reinforcement that actually they don't feel they need to do the brand guardianship because they think that their values are taking care of that for themselves until they hit that wall of a crisis and a backlash. And then they either go two ways, they either go big emotional reaction that they can't understand how that's happening and it really you know pains them so they run in do an emotional reaction which then causes more damage or they go too far the other way and they come out with the legalese that Andrew was saying and they completely lose the heart and the soul and the tone of voice of the brand and that further alienates their audiences so either way is not good but actually a lot of them are just starting to think about brand guardianship too late once it's already become a problem because they assume that their values and their mission are taking care of that for them. Even a hundred million turnover charities fall foul of this, that they don't build in the crisis response into their purchasing processes or their bid and tender processes where somebody should be saying to the board, hold on a second, if this goes wrong, it could look like this. Because how is the board supposed to make a decision? How does a founder make a decision, especially in founder-led companies, if if they don't understand the level of risk they're in? Because businesses die because crises are mishandled. And yeah, you see the big ones and you see them smoke and mirrors and you see them eventually survive like Spotify, but that is sheer scale. Small businesses will not survive those things. A well-targeted attack will take a small business out. And I'm not trying to be scary here. And if you ever do do that, we have free consultations on the website and that isn't a plug. They are completely free. We do that because small brands can't necessarily afford us. And they can't afford the help they need to survive. So they just die because somebody wants to build a social media audience. Somebody wants to turn it into growth for their audience at the cost of somebody else. 
I suppose that's the thing that what constitutes a crisis is different for every company. So for some people, it might be 10 people having a go at you on something that really matters to you. That could be the beginning of a crisis. And the role of brands is evolving so much. And we talk about this in the interview, obviously across the two parts of these two episodes, but actually the role of brands now is to take a stand and is to reflect what's going on in society and is to help improve issues in society, whether that's equality and diversity or sustainability or another area of activism. And actually consumers really want that from the brands that they're buying from, particularly younger generations that are going to become more and more of a dominant spending power. So we're just going to see this progress. But I think as marketers, there's so much we have to learn about that to really embed that. And purely from a sustainability point of view, marketers are now having to get involved in the supply chain. Because if you look at the Green Claims Code regulations and the kind of anti misleading marketing regulations that are coming in around the world around sustainability if you're claiming something is green you need to have the data to back that up so that means going and having conversations with suppliers digging into your supply chain finding out where things come from and how they're made maybe understanding a bit of the science behind that and interpreting the data we've never had to do that before we've just relied on the information we've been given in the brief and off we've gone but actually now we're the ones that are responsible for that in the same way that on the diversity piece we have to think about how we're really embedding that in our campaigns not just the models that we're using but who the photographers are and um, who's writing the messaging and what audiences are they writing for all of the things that we discussed in the interview and I think that's where we're having to learn so much more and actually in doing that learning we can become the brand guardians because we know what questions to ask and I think a lot of the time that we see brands fall foul of this and fall into a crisis that they maybe didn't see coming but could have risk assessed against it's because they didn't know what questions to ask and how to do that risk assessment process and on that I think you're absolutely right Sean and I think if I can take that a step further even if you have all of that in place which very few brands do and it's my bread and butter I'd hope that some of the things we've suggested over these multiple episodes has helped people move in that direction but the other thing I'd say is if, if you're from the Competition Markets Authority, do get in contact with us because we would love to talk to you because even as marketeers, even as crisis specialists, being able to say that we are compliant with the Green Claims Code, there is not a lot to go on. It is a very thin area. Now, we retain legal advice and et cetera, et cetera, and make sure that everything's compliant for our clients. But that becomes a very expensive process, which means small businesses struggle to do it. Their risk assessment is, this is too risky, we just won't do it. But if small ethical businesses can't talk about being ethical, the legislation and the Green Claims Code starts to actually do more damage than good. And part of why we exist and part of why I exist in the ethical space is because hopefully we can provide that advice through the podcast through 181st Street and be there to support people to actually figure out how to get where they need to go and not break any rules. Because if you're a small business and you're doing your own comps, have you got time to sit down and learn the entire Green Claims Code and how it works? Because I know they say there's only six things but actually, when you start applying those, it doesn't work like that. It's a 58-page document. I've read it approximately 25 times now, front to back, and that takes a lot of time. Yeah, and that's the thing, is that 
we lobby because that's the other thing that I used to do is a little bit of lobbying. We lobby to try and get clarity on this stuff and then try to share that clarity. But at the same time, try to also talk to people about what they can and can't do in terms of time. Because if you are a small brand, you can be eaten alive by a crisis. But every hour you're being eaten alive by that crisis, your sales are down and you're not working on something else. And it really is a hammer blow, to, even to a medium-sized business. And all it takes is one person with a thousand Twitter followers and a vendetta. I mean, there are actually a number of examples I would give right now, some of which are very, very poignant and represent exactly how not to react. But if I was to do that, it would re-spark their crises and they are small to medium-sized businesses, so I won't. But there are a couple over the last couple of years that really spring to mind where good people doing good things try, but their response was, we are good people doing good things. And because they'd already failed to live up to the expectations within the sector, they continuously got hammered. And then they end up in the Oatly problem of once you lose that audience, you've got to replace it with something else. And if you're small, you can't. I think that's something that is important to get across. The point is that you don't have to have done something wrong to find yourself in this position. And if you do find yourself in this position, it is worth taking a look at whether you did do something wrong or whether it was a perception, all, all of which could be perfectly valid. People complaining could have a perfectly valid point, but you still might not have done something that you would view as wrong. What Andrew's saying, I'm guessing, is how you deal with that crisis at the very beginning is the difference between how that could blow up and not blow up. But don't assume just because you are a good company doing good things that it will not happen to you because it could and it might not be your fault, but you might still find yourself in that position. And on that, Stuart, the way I describe it to our clients is the narrative is set by the person attacking you, person, newspaper, whatever scale you want it to be at. They set the narrative. That narrative is established in the public consciousness. It is what is being shared. It is what is being read. You have to respond as concisely and as directly and as smoothly, smoothing out the edges of the issue as much as you can and repositioning yourself to that narrative. And that's the important thing that people don't realise with crises is once the narrative is set, there is nothing you can do about it. It doesn't matter if it's complete nonsense or wrong. You have two options if it's all wrong. You either live with it or you sue. And if you sue, that is going to go worse than living with it. There is literally no good opportunity to sue. Um, I'm reminded of, I can't remember which singer it was, but she didn't like being on Google Earth and somebody had put a pin in her home on Google Earth and she'd been included in a tour. So she sued, which meant that everybody in the world reported where she lived. The moment you sue, it becomes big or medium brand takes on smaller person or smaller brand. And the moment you do that, you're into the Oatly problem of them suing somebody and then they're now running ads that literally say, help us pay off the fact that Oatly tried to sue us. It doesn't work and you just end up actually making the story bigger. Often the answer is to go quiet, but it's how you go quiet. It's how you respond. It's how you interact. And whatever you do, please, please, please do not allow your CEO to talk to anybody even if that means locking them in the cupboard. I think the one that springs to mind for me is 
brew dog who sued over their lone wolf spirits. And when you are a punk brand, when you are a brand trying to be that kind of rebellious and, and cool people, getting the big lawyers involved is a really bad mistake, especially if you're taking on a local family company trying to do their stuff. And if I remember they ended up coming out and saying that the lawyers had done it without their permission. But it shows you you've got to be so careful about this. But I think another thing to remember, and I think this is really important, is if you find yourself in this position, it does not mean that you are guilty if you accept help. If you go and speak to a crisis PR, whether it be Andrew or anyone you know or anyone for advice, it doesn't mean you're admitting that you did something wrong. It's just doing the logical step. It's a really good point, Stuart, because... It doesn't actually matter if you've done something wrong or not. What it matters is what the narrative is to the public and whether that narrative is getting traction. Beyond that, it doesn't actually matter whether you're guilty or not. It doesn't matter if you ask for help or not, because the moment you are attacked, that is the narrative. That is what you are accused of. It may be untrue. It may be legally unsound. It may be just completely factually false but you will never be able to explain that to your audience in a succinct enough way to convince every single one of them that they are wrong so you are under attack you are effectively going to lose some supporters the first thing we teach brands is that you've already lost you've got to get out of the mindset that you can recover completely from an attack. You've got to get into the mindset of damage limitation, making sure that that damage is as limited as possible. And very, very occasionally, very occasionally, and we had one of these the other day, actually being able to stop it dead in its tracks from doing any damage at all and turn it into a positive. But that is a rare occurrence. More often than not, if you get attacked, the narrative will hurt you whether it's true or not. And asking for help doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. It just means that you're willing to protect your business. That isn't a sales pitch. Even if you just go and ask a PR friend, even if you just get some advice from other people in the sector as to how to respond, even if you just take half an hour to go walk around the block, just take that moment to reconsider where you are. Think about how you're being attacked thinking about who is attacking you and how they're attacking you and where they're attacking. Because once you know those things, you can start to assess why and how you respond. The big why isn't the attack itself. The big why is what is in it for them to attack you, which at the height of my political career was always, well, it's a newspaper and they're trying to sell newspapers, but newspapers don't sell newspapers anymore. So it's all clickbait. But that means that crisis stories for politicians have changed because they become more party gate, where you want regular little bits fed into you um, rather than one big investigative journalist piece that you're never going to recover from. It's a very different approach now than it was a decade or two ago. And with live blogging, things have changed even more that there are just running live blogs on certain issues. Now, fortunately, in the ethical space and sustainable and regenerative space, that hasn't, there is no large enough player to run a live blog, but I'd hope that they wouldn't then go after people just to get the clickbait. Because if it's all driven by advertising, that becomes a problem. But if it's all driven by follower accounts and patron donations, 
attacks from influencers are going to be key in this space until there are big news players and working out how that influencer thinks and how to target them. The moment I say the word target, that will have upset people. It will make people immediately go, oh, but that person is attacking you. You have to know how to defend yourself. I think it's worth noting as well that in thinking about that response, you have to take a long-term view. And that's why it's so hard to manage your own crisis because you're immediately in short-term, how do I get through this? What do I do next? But actually you have to take that long-term view because you have to think about, are you going to do this again? Is this something you are going to stand by? So Oatly, for example, to come back to our previous example, their initial crisis that we addressed on the podcast was their choice of investor. Now they doubled down on that and defended that because what else were they going to do? They weren't going to stop taking money from those investors and they're probably going to take from similar sources in the future. So actually they couldn't apologize for that and they couldn't reverse that decision. They had to take that long-term view of in this response to this, how do we lean into it in a way that brings as many people on the journey with us as possible, but accepts that we're possibly going to lose some people. So you have to be able to take that step back and think long term about what your objectives are, what your plan is going to be, and how likely it is that something like this is going to happen again. To build on Sean's point, if you are a brand going for serious investment over a million, get a crisis PR on your staff or on retainer as quickly as possible. Because if you are in this sector, you are going to hit that wall. It is an absolute guarantee because there is no clean money. I've worked in the city. There is not enough clean money. There will be in 10 years, 15 years time. But by then, if brands don't build using oil money or wherever it comes from, preferably not oil money, if at all avoidable, brands don't build using the finances available from the people that are willing, they will not build and you will just end up with Kellogg's, with Nestle, with all of these big existing companies buying up these little companies and using them to greenwash. A lot of our listeners will be smaller marketers working for, for companies and your company might make a mistake, but that doesn't mean you just accept it. If someone starts attacking you, even if you are at fault, making one mistake does not make you liable for the whole destruction of your company. I think it's really important to realize that as an ethical person, that you can make mistakes and not suffer the whole loss of your company because of it. And I do think there's maybe a mindset of people going, well, we actually did make a mistake. We need to ride through it. You, you don't need to ride through it. You maybe need to admit that you made that mistake, but then you also need to get out of that situation as quickly as possible. Now, again, whether that means getting external marketers in, someone who can look at it a bit more dispassionately, who maybe isn't as tied into that brand as you, that could be just as good a move as anything. But I think it's really important to realize that nobody should be attacked in this way unless you have done something incredibly bad, at which point you might need to look at why you're still with that company. But if you still believe in that company and you still think that that company has something to give, then definitely look at getting help. Don't just try and ride it out. I completely agree with that. I think if more companies asked for the help they needed, more companies would survive and more companies would grow. Actually, if they asked for the help early enough, they wouldn't have the mistake, as we're calling it. But often it's not actually a mistake. In this sector specifically, it's more likely to be the growth of a company on a set of ideals that have been chosen because they are the ideals the founders believe in. But nobody has thought that through to the end result if the company is very successful. If the company reaches medium size, 
they are taking money from somewhere, even if it's Lloyd's, even if it's just a bank loan. There's an argument that says bank loans aren't ethical because the money is actually secretly funded by forex trading or it's funded by investments in arms dealers or whatever it may be banks don't just actually keep your money on hand they reinvest it so there's very little clean money so even if you only need a bank loan there's a question as to whether or not that's ethical basically it comes down to whoever is attacking you and where they decide the line is it's one of the reasons the ethical space is more at risk than others because you're not the one deciding the line, but you are the one espousing the values. So you haven't got the defense of, well, not my problem, like every greedy corporate business in the world. Andrew, what kind of advice would you give to businesses or marketers or anyone who might find themselves in this kind of position? If you're a director, a manager, or even an officer, get out, go for a walk. And if you are a junior, junior, then go have lunch go take a break. When this stuff hits and you're being attacked, the worst thing you can do is respond instantly. You go, you walk it off. You find out just enough to know what's going on. You wait until that point and you should not respond until you know what's going on. At that point, do not respond. Go for a walk. Because it's at that moment you can wander off, have a think for half an hour, get outside. And I think outside is important, not from a mental health point of view, but from a not being in the office point of view. It's that space away from the office. It's that space away from the environment you work in, even if you work at home, to actually think it through. Think about those first things. Who is attacking us? Where are they attacking us? Why are they attacking us? It doesn't matter what the attack is, they hold true. And that would be my second point. Ask those three questions. Who, why, where? And a fourth one, who is listening? And if I may, a fifth one, which would be, what is the chance? Well, actually, this would be the third overall point. What is the chance of this spreading? And then finally, ask yourself how much risk this is to your business. Because that's the most important thing. How much risk is it? If it's minimal and you think, "Mm, well, this person's just sent a horrible tweet, that's fine. But if somebody's writing a blog about you and they've got thousands of followers, that's a different matter. Thanks, Andrew. We wanted to give a bit of an overview of what Andrew does and why we speak to him every podcast because I think it's really important for us to look at other marketing strategies and what other companies have done because hopefully that will help either inspire people or warn people on the good and bad things to do. Now for the second part of the interview with Dr. Rebecca Swift from Getty. got any advice for for companies who are looking to be a little bit more ethical with their images and and how best for them to achieve that um i think the thing about imagery is you, you have imagery you create yourselves which you have complete control over you have imagery that might be submitted by a you know your own contributors your use generated content your customer generated content and then you have content that you might license or you know get from somewhere else like you know unsplash for example and so you know that you have different you're you're in control in different different aspects i think you know if you're licensing content from from someone like ourselves you know if you go to the iStock website for example you can get all the information you need you can see who the photographer is you can see who the person is and and 
you know, you you can be pretty confident that you're actually using an image that is that has been shot and and, and has been created in the way that uh, it, it says it has. It's harder with user generated content. You uh, you know you. And I think this is where brands find it quite difficult. It's actually managing the paperwork of using user-generated content is, is really tricksy, you know, in terms of, you know, do you pay a royalty? Are you, you know, are, are you asking for model and property releases? You know, who takes on the liability if, if the model comes back and says, I didn't give permission for that? And, and, uh, and who, who, you know, whose image is it? Is it, you know, did the person who sent it to you, what is it actually their image? And then, you know, your own content, you can, you can ask questions around, you know, who, who are you going to hire to do the, to do the shoot? Who, who is going to be doing the modeling? How is the shoot being put together? You know, is it being done in a responsible and dignified way? And, uh, and ensuring obviously within that, I think the other thing about the ethics of photography is making sure that the paperwork's done. So before a single image has been shot, that the the model understands what they're going to be. And I say model, I mean it could it could be anyone, honestly, not a professional model. The person who's being photographed, you know, have they understood what the shoot's going to be? Do they have it, you know, do they know what to expect? How long are they going to be there? You know, going through going through all of that is actually really important before you start a shoot and, and making sure you've got consent, uh, not just written consent, but they understand what the consent actually means and, you know, and, and ensuring that uh, all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. Um, and that sounds really tricky and I, I, it's actually just a process that, that once you're in you get used to doing it it becomes easier and easier the, the, the more you the more you do it but I think ask questions ask questions about where the where content comes from and who who's actually created it that's really useful advice thank you yeah, it's also things I don't think about you know when we're looking for imagery you just don't you just go oh that's that's kind of the image I want and you don't think about it so it's really useful exactly yeah I mean if you think about the period of time where right clicking on the on the internet was was uh, it was a uh, you know that was an epidemic in the early stages of of visual social media and there was no consideration of who shot what and where it came from and, and the images were just kind of you know disseminated across across the web and they lost their the, you know they, they lost the the credit line or they lost who had actually uh, created that image we actually took google to to the european court to, to to change that because you know when you're running a licensing business and you're trying to protect the contributor it was it was undoing you know all it was undoing their right to 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 commerce really it was undoing their right to, to be able to create to, to be able to con create content and, and, and have a career out of it. And luckily they've changed it now. And, you know, images do, there is a source material, you know where it's come from, um, use it at your peril. <laughs> it feels like we are starting to value content more and we are moving, thankfully, I guess, to a world of quality over quantity because it does feel like it just exploded into just sheer quantity and everybody was just trying to churn out as much as possible. And actually now... I guess we've become so overwhelmed by that. And also we've seen the impact of that in so many ways, positive and negative, that we are starting to curate our own news feeds, curate our own media that we consume. And that's rippling back to the brands that actually they need to create quality content. So that involves then all of the creators and the organisations like yourselves as well. 
Yeah, and it, it, you know, I, I think brands will talk about how they support the arts or that they, you know, they sponsor music events and things, and then they will will use an image that that they don't know where it came from, or you know, or, so so they kind of, on one hand they're doing this very expensive campaign which might be sponsoring you know a big a big star, and but then they're taking money from someone who's just trying to get started and or running their own business and. You know, um, one of the wonderful things about working with the iStock community is that they're all, you know, they're people trying to run their own their own businesses. They're, you know, they're small businesses. They're people who are moving from being an amateur shooter into into the professional, you know, full time um, shooting. And and so, so, you know, to be able to do that for people and, and to be able to support that community is really, really motivating and, and you know, gives a lot of job satisfaction for, for people who work in, you know, in, in, in the business and in, in, in our organisation, because you're not focusing in on just a few, you know, top star performance which is what it used to be in in you know in the early days now it's much more democratic across lots and lots of different contributors and you know and the, the, the photography industry is is blooming it's blossoming and and every time we have a big shift in in uh the visual language you know because of the shift towards sustainability the need for social distancing the you know the the way we feel about travel now and that you know the, the brief time we were all wearing face marks it means that there's a ton of opportunity to completely refresh all of that content all over again but shoot it in a new way you know that's really exciting and and um and fun you know and 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 it, it enables more people to come in and, and and be part of part of what we're doing so you know brands should be supporting that they should be encouraging creativity in in that way and you know i always i i always say to to brands that they get the stock they deserve that you know the the, the industry is is an industry of freelancers it's not, you know, we're not, we don't have in-house photographers that go out and shoot. It's people who are shooting, who trust us when we ask them what, you know, what to shoot, who put their own resources into shooting a lot of the time. And they, they shoot what they know sells. And so if you keep buying the same kind of content, then the community will keep creating it. Um, and it's only when, you know, brands start to shift their ways of thinking about content and, and taking that right down to when they're, you know, using stock imagery that, that you see the, the whole kind of uh, change within, within the, the, the ecosystem of, of uh, stock creation. Yeah, so interesting. And it just shows how important it is to have the ethics and the sustainability and everything else just really embedded in the brands and yes. in the way the companies are running. Exactly, exactly. And you have, you know, you have to, you have to insist on that, right, you know, right down to whoever's running the social media platforms and or or who is, you know, filling in the digital platforms with content and, and, you know, putting up content every single day it surprises me you know even in big businesses how how low in the hierarchy people are who are given that job that is the mechanism by which most consumers see your brand and it's it's really key you know uh in terms of every single piece of material that you put out absolutely have you guys got any other projects that you'd like to talk about anything else on the cards Oh, so many, so many. The, the big project we're working on at the moment, which is uh, slightly all-consuming, all is we're creating DEI, so Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Toolkits. And we have created those with Citigroup, who, you know, is a global finance organisation. And, you know, Citi have have been, you know, have been the momentum behind it, but they have allowed us to 
create kind of public access toolkits. And in each toolkit, so, so we've, we've, we've created 12 across 12 countries. So we've done, you know, the US, the UK, India, United Arab Emirates, Hong Kong, Brazil, France, Germany, etc. And within each toolkit, it looks at seven pillars of identity. So it looks at age, gender, disability, race and ethnicity, body shape, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, and religion. And with it, and, and in each country, we've looked at how the population of that country breaks down. Then we've looked at how it breaks down visually in advertising and marketing. We have access to millions of, of, um, of images being licensed by millions of, of customers. So um, we were able to do that quite easily. And then we've looked at where, you know, where advertising marketing is falling down, where, who's it missing? How, how is it stereotyping those different identities? Uh, and it's been absolutely fascinating. So I, I did the, the UK market and, you know, we discovered that actually we do really, really well. Well, for example, um, representing the black communities, both Afri black Africans and black uh, Caribbean people. What we don't do very good well in is representing Indian, Bangladeshi, um, Pakistani, which is a much bigger ethnic group in the UK than those from Africa and, and the Caribbean. So, yeah, and then when, when you do see uh, people, especially Indian people, they tend to be working with technology or holding technology or, or you know, on the laptop and things. And so we're kind of, where representing Presentation is happening it's not happening in terms of you know family celebrations and and uh, you know uh, friends hanging out and things it's happening in the work environment and so that's the kind of visualization that's going out into the marketplace and so you know we're kind of just breaking everything down and it's it's hell of a lot of work and I think I think with the reason we're doing this and the reason why we're very happy to share it is because it is a lot of work and and it's required you know a big team of people working on it full time um and and brands are not going to necessarily invest that time uh and especially smaller brands who just don't have the you know don't have the resources so you know we're going to make that available for, for everyone to use that sounds fantastic and such a useful tool for brands because also if you I, I appreciate how hard it is to do that work but if you start doing that you identify demographics as a brand that you're completely missing out on exactly those are huge commercial opportunities as well exactly that that's exactly it and you imagine you know like like you say you imagine that you see people or or you or you don't or you don't think you see until you do uh, until you don't rather but then when you actually look at it it's it's yeah fascinating you know over 40s women oh don't even get me started <laughs> good to be a really powerful way of unpicking our unconscious biases as well because the visual language around us just can confirm those and can play into those stereotypes so much and I don't think any of us are doing enough to really challenge those unconscious biases and you know we've become more aware of them but actually there's still so much work to do and I think that's going to be a really important piece of that project as well yeah and, that, and actually that's the next part of what we're doing actually addressing unconscious bias we, we did some research last year and people in general think that they are not themselves biased but everybody else is which I you know which is great it's a great starting point to kind of address the problem is that you you're never gonna you're never gonna get people to admit their bias you have to show them 
their bias yeah but do it in a in a in a nice way you know we try and create you know toolkits and 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 communication to things which are which are inclusive in terms of you know we're just well, we're working through this and and we'll share the results of, of of the work that we're doing so that you can also use it not you know not stand up and say everybody's rubbish and we're great because that's never gonna it's not gonna make friends is it so if you've got a, a favorite ethical marketing campaign, Shan and I, between us, have spoken about Dove as being one of those ones. Somebody pointed out to me when I first started the site how incredibly powerful the Dove visibility project was as a piece of ethical marketing. And that was one of the ones that I really looked at in a big because it changed how I thought about marketing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, unfortunately, the, the examples are really few and far between. You know, you, if you look at the... Uh, you know the, the big advertising awards like the Cannes Lions. They, you know, they they, they very much have kind of pivoted to to, to uh, you know ethical and good and purpose and and you know all of these wonderful wonderful kind of catch phrases. But a lot of those campaigns are short short term. They're short lived. They're not creating sy- systemic change. They're, cha- they're 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 just a, a flash in the pan. And th- what I really like about the Dove is that it's 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 a long term. You know, it's a, it's an absolute commitment. So I would always use Dove as an example. You know, not necessarily just the, the work we did, although, I, you know, I had a, a fabulous experience of, of doing that. I think, I mean, I think the Unstereotype Alliance are doing some amazing work. And, and the great thing about the Unstereotype Alliance is that they are bringing everyone together. They're creating a community of like-minded people across academia, across kind of organization, you know, uh, NGOs and 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 brands and and you know we joined uh, a couple of years ago and you know the, the exposure that we've had to you know how brands think and and the work that they're trying to do within this space has been really powerful and I think they'll they go from strength to strength and the brands that within that are also going from strength to strength so yeah I don't have a, I don't have a new example unfortunately that I can think of no I think that's a great example I think the whole industry, we've spoken about this a fair bit, I guess, I think the whole industry, marketing specifically, has become a lot more ethical, right down from stop funding hate to to people like the Unstereotype Alliance, to the Conscious Ad Network, to people who are being aware of the fact that, that there is a powerful group of supporters who will help and will start to move things in the right direction. I think it is that shift that you were talking about, Rebecca, that actually consumers are starting to push back to brands now and say, you know, actually, we're doing our bit. What are you doing? Yeah. And they're having to respond to that. Yes. Yes. I, I think that's been such a big shift. You know, the power of the the power of the of the people in terms of calling out, you know, bad marketing decisions. It must put the fear of god into marketers but at least it makes them think and at least if you're doing something from a from a position of wanting to make change or evolve or you know help the company forward move forward then you know your audience will come with you absolutely and we see that in the when we talk about crises and how brands respond that if you do it in the right way it can be a really good learning opportunity and actually a chance to really get more advocacy from your consumers i think what's exciting it, it must be a really terrifying time to be in a in several marketing departments i would imagine but i think it is turning 
those heads of marketing, heads of comms into real advocates for the causes they know their audiences care about. And actually it isn't enough now for it just to be left to one department and just to be done at a very surface level. It has to be embedded. So I think it's a really exciting time to be in those roles because you can actually make that change happen. But yeah, definitely challenging. And I think people want the brands that they love to change they they're willing to forgive them if they do make mistakes so i think we've often said don't be scared of making mistakes providing you are willing to realize that you've made them and look at how not to make them for a second and i think that people are more forgiving than sometimes we give them credit for yeah exactly i guess the other thing we usually ask people and i guess shan as well what have you been enjoying over the last six weeks or month i have loved the winter olympics i have loved the paralympics Last week, I loved crafts um, and I've been watching the pottery throwdown. Um, love that. It's just it's a lovely way to spend a, an evening watching people make pots and things. And then I've been um, I've been reading, actually. I've been thinking a lot about social change and kind of living through social change and how we we talked about you know previous crises and obviously we've spent a lot of time looking at what happened during the financial crisis um and then also the this the environmental crisis that preceded that and then you know I've, I've done a lot of work myself on on where how the economy you know what happens in the economy is it booms and busts and what how visual language changes within that so I've been you know really thinking about that a lot so I've been reading reading novels actually I mean they're all like kind of kitchen sink novels but um, I've been reading the um, I think they're called the Cazalet Chronicles which are four books about a, a really rich family living through the kind of between the wars and you know, trying to adapt to a new way of of thinking and 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 uh, and kind of having to downsize and all the rest of it. And then then I read the Neapolitan novels by Ilana Ferrante, um, which is the, my brilliant friend was the first one, and that was about the kind of the the economic growth in Italy and the rise of communism. And you know, again, living living in a very kind of small environment in community, but then the change that's kind of happening to you. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm obviously going through some kind of like, you know, change myself here. I'm just trying to think about, you know, how 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 we kind of it happens to, you know, things happen to us, you know, like like the pandemic and and how it changes us as as humans. Hmm. What about you, Shan? What have you been enjoying? Well, I have had COVID, so I've been locked in the house. So daytimes have been all Disney Channel all the time for my one-year-old, which, to be honest, I am enjoying. Are you going to um, sing? Do you want to sing the Bruno song? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. You've got it in your head now, though, haven't you? <laughs> it is always in my head. <laughs> On repeat all the time. But I, in the evenings, was binging Succession and have now finished <gasps> it, which feels like a masterclass in unethical business and unethical oh, marketing. Isn't it glorious? Else. It's glorious. fantastic absolutely fantastic and uh, I was just getting upset that that was going to be a gap in my evenings television but interior design masters is back and that is my guilty pleasure (laughs) Um, when Amelia my daughter was born we were in hospital for quite a while after she was born and I binge watched the first two series during that time so it kind of takes me back to just that really kind of slow uncertain time but it was a real kind of bit of joy for me in that time and I'm finding it is a again now that I'm locked in the house with COVID <laughs> and I get to the end of the day and I'm just exhausted and I just want to put something on so I'm really looking forward to that tonight oh it's it's an office it's an office space tonight isn't it 
Oh, well, that's good because yeah. I am renovating. When I'm allowed out again, I'm currently renovating a new office to move into. So that's going to give me lots of ideas and exactly. probably run up my credit card. <laughs> a little bit. So that's good news. <laughs> what about you, Stuart? What have you been enjoying? Well, obviously, I've been reading Buy Better, Consume Less. Oh, excellent news. <laughs> I have been listening to the Bad People podcast that I, I recommended to you. Oh, me too. I was listening to it while I was painting the new office when I was allowed out and about. Well, I'm going to see Mamma Mia tonight. Oh, amazing. Never seen Mamma Mia. I'm quite excited. Oh, what? I love Mamma Mia. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. It's been great to, to speak to you. And it's really nice to hear about the ethics behind you guys' imagery. Because as, as Chana said, it's it, an initiative we really liked and, and had highlighted as one of our favourites of last year. Uh, we were really impressed with just with what you guys were doing and we thought it was something that we'd like to show smaller businesses as well that there is an option to, to look at for ethical imagery. Mm. You don't have to do what so many people do which is go to Google Images and type in whatever it is they're looking for. And no, I, I'm, honestly, I think, I think you know, as a small business, if you go to iStock, you'll be surprised at how incredibly affordable the images are. You know, you're, you're talking a few pounds, you're not talking hundreds of pounds. And it's much better to, to use a, a, an image that has been, you know, has been shot in an ethical way by somebody who has, has, has you know, signed model releases, has shot in a place that they have permission to shoot and, and is licensing their content for, for a reason and, and will be paid for, 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 for the use of that image. You know, it's, it, doesn't, doesn't ha- it doesn't require huge budgets. Um, it's, yeah. what it does require is is time searching and i think that's the thing i think sean and i would both say you know maybe go and have a look if there's something you're looking for have a look in iStock. you might not find exactly what you're looking for but if you're willing to put the time in there's a good chance you will yes exactly exactly and and you know the the, the our search engine is much better now it gives suggestions it's it, you know it bases its suggestions on other people who have been looking for similar content you know do you mean this or you know have, have you thought about this or this is this content here is similar or it was taken from the same shoot so you're guided through through the process that's so so useful having been on on that process that's really really useful is there anything you want to plug rebecca before we leave uh, no, please look out for the DE and I toolkits. We will be um, we'll be promoting those on our website. If you're interested in uh, research around how images work and how images connect, we have a separate website which is creativeinsights.getimages.com, and that's where my team puts their research. Um, and we you know we look across subjects and regions and and you know uh, and, and again it's it's open for anyone to access. Uh, but thank you so much. It's been really interesting. And as I say, genuinely, we were really pleased that you agreed to come on. Oh, you just have to wind me up and off I go. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. <laughs> no, it's been brilliant. I feel like I could talk to you all day. I won't. I won't let you go. But it's been absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much for your time, Rebecca. Thank you very much for having me. And um, uh, I really enjoy talking at you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks again to Andrew Sham and Dr. Rebecca Swift. We will be back for the next podcast soon. And please, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, hit that subscribe button. This podcast was edited by Stuart Mitchell. The music was by Joe McCafferty. We look forward to seeing you for the next podcast.